Well, good morning. We are here in week three of this series called The Kingdom, unpacking this idea that is uh, central to the teachings of Jesus, but unfortunately, one of the best kept secrets in the modern Western church. And as a church, uh, we have been reading through uh, this book called Seek First by Jeremy Treat. Encourage you to grab one. Uh, we're actually out of the copies that we purchased here uh, for you, but you can pick it up at our local Christian bookstore or go to cccgo.com/info to buy your own. And uh, it's important that we get to do this together. We're using this book and this series to kind of help reframe our perspective. Uh, so, if you would uh, just let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into it. God, I thank you that you have something important to share. God, I pray that I don't get in the way of that. Lord, help me to decrease and yourself to increase. God, we give ourselves to you as individuals, as families, as a church. God, we are yours, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, By a show of hands, how many of you would say that you grew up in a church? Wow. Yeah, that's... A lot, a lot like last service too. I'm the same way. Um, I grew up in a church a lot like Crossroads, actually. My parents both came from Christian homes, and um, so we were around the church a lot. We were there multiple times a week, probably for Sunday school or small groups or choir rehearsals or potlucks or you name it, we were there. And so I became very familiar with the scriptures at a young age, even went to Bible college and graduated with my degree from there. And yet, this idea of the kingdom of God somehow has eluded me until just recently, and I'm just now beginning my journey of uncovering what that means. In the Gospels, the word love is used 75 times. Save is used 34 times. The word hell is used 11 times. But Jesus used the term kingdom in his teachings a whopping 105 times. The kingdom of God, or sometimes called the kingdom of heaven, was a central teaching of Jesus, and it's something that we as a church are using to help refocus our perspectives on the teachings of Jesus and to establish the lens through which we ought to view all of life. And it's the second part of that statement that we're going to focus in on today. We've adopted Jeremy Treat's definition of the kingdom of God, and that is that the kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Like Phil mentioned, Jesus came teaching a message that the Gospel of Mark would summarize by saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news or the Gospel. Now, I feel like the struggle that we face a lot of times when it comes to uh, any teaching of Jesus is that, yeah, that makes sense maybe for all the people 2,000 years ago, but how does any of this affect me? Well, answering that question can be harder on some topics than others, but I think that the kingdom of God actually resolves one of the most common tensions that we feel in today's culture. If you're anything like me, you've asked questions like, why am I here? Or what is all of this leading toward? We've all experienced the daily minutia that leaves us at the end of the day asking the question, is there any real purpose to any of this? Even for present-day Jesus followers like us, Contrary to our best intentions, we tend to compartmentalize our lives into distinct categories to separate them from one another. 
Have you ever noticed uh, when you see that coworker out on a Saturday night, you can hardly recognize them by the way that they look or act? Or maybe you're on the other side of that situation where you come across somebody at church who you know from your kids' ball games, and you get that pit in your stomach because you know that they've seen that dark side that comes out. We all know uh, the picture that Hollywood portrays of the stuffy stay-at-home parent who finally gets a night out on the town with their friends. I mean, they deserve to let loose a little bit, right? But I'll tell you from firsthand experience, having to manage alter egos in every facet of our lives, it's exhausting. You know this. I mean, you know that we have the work version of ourselves. We have the holiday family version. We have the church version, maybe the parent version. But with this compartmentalization, we end up working for the weekend, surviving family time until the kids go to bed, staying up too late on the weekends, and then waking up Monday morning regretting the past couple days and asking that same question again. Is there any purpose to any of this? You see, I believe the way we compartmentalize our lives leads us to suffer in the paralyzing pursuit of purpose. And in my experience, that's likely not the root of the problem. I think ultimately what it comes down to is control. You see, when we compartmentalize our lives, we separate out different areas of life, and it gives us the illusion, thinking that we are in control. The narrative in our culture is all about creating your reality or being true to yourself, grabbing hold of your destiny. Or if some of that sounds a little progressive or new age, maybe you're more comfortable with more traditional values like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or grabbing life by the horns. Maybe it's uh, creating a life with a little hard work and elbow grease. It's all saying the same thing. It's your life. You're in charge. But I don't think any of us would consider ourselves the king of our own lives. I mean, we come to church, we try and raise godly kids, or uh, we try and build a godly marriage, and that's all good, but when we think about it, our actions look a lot less like you are our God and we are your people, and more like, yeah, you created me, but I'll take it from here. We give Adam and Eve such a hard time wondering how they could have, uh, if they could have contributed to a problem that was so obviously wrong and simple and easy, but we do the same thing each and every day. The issue isn't as obvious as we'd like to think. It's sneaky. It's subtle. It's the little things that we tell ourselves. Like, we're experts at justifying things to ourselves. It's just this once. I deserve to let loose a little bit, right? I mean, I know times are crazy right now, but as soon as I get that promotion, then uh, I'll have a lot more time. I don't have time for that interruption right now. I'm right in the middle of something. I'll think about that later. So whether it's Netflix or the 10 o'clock news or work emails or a good book or PS5, whatever it is, we all have great answers for why and how we spend our time and energy. That's because it's all lacking one thing. It's lacking the one thing we can't create for ourselves, and that is purpose. So if we just stop and ask the question, how is that working for us? I think if we're being honest, it's not working, is it? Believe me, I've looked for this purpose. I've heard so many people ask this good question, and I've heard the best-selling authors and influencers give their answer. The most compelling thing that I've found is that it simply comes down to survival. You want to settle down and get married and find a good job? Okay, why? To spend more time with your kids, maybe. Good. Why? To leave a legacy? It's a good thing. Why? so they can pass that legacy on, to make a better life for themselves and for others around them. Maybe it's so they can create better technology so that humans can advance and 
what, exist longer? It becomes a circular philosophical argument that leaves your most important question unanswered. What's the purpose? Some say they just want to enjoy life for as long as they can before they die, and that's morbid, but at least they're being honest. But does that answer really satisfy? As humans, we have this innate desire to matter, to have purpose, and that's not the evil, because you were created in the image of the Creator, designed for greatness. But don't be surprised then when you long for more than merely survival. You see, the problem that we face is when we turn away from that creator and forget the divine purpose in which all things were created from the start. The first week of this series, we looked at the kingdom as the narrative, the overarching narrative. Last week, Phil talked a little bit about, uh, from Colossians 1, using that passage to paint a picture of what Jesus is like as king. And I want to zoom in on a couple verses out of that passage to outline what I think ought to be our purpose in life in light of that king. So let's talk about Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. It says, For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy or the first place. So keep your Bible open or your Bible app open there, because we're going to revisit that first a few times. That thing that feels out of place, it's when we take God's seat. We put ourselves in the first place. It's like a child that you find wearing daddy's shoes. It's really cute in like a bless your heart sort of way. But when that child climbs into the driver's seat and pulls the car into reverse, you realize that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. It's because the three-year-old wasn't meant to be behind the steering wheel, and you and I were not meant to be on the throne of the world. So, if we truly believe that all things have been created through him and for him, then this should radically shift our approach to our everyday lives. Those compartments start to look a lot less like Marie Kondo's Six Rules for Tidying and a lot more like my playroom after the last 20 minutes of wrestling before bedtime. There's no neat separation between one thing or another. It all becomes one inseparable, holistic picture of flourishing in the kingdom of God. So I want to think through what it would look like to take this holistic view of the rule and reign of God and reimagine four significant areas of life. Work, rest, food, and art. Now let's start with the world of work. We have to give King Jesus authority in our work because all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So for our purposes, this may mean the work that you get paid to do, but it may also mean any way that you contribute to the world around you. I love that we devoted an entire message to this idea just a few weeks ago, uh, back at the end of January. So I encourage you, if you hadn't seen that, go back and check it out. In a culture where work is a way to achieve status, define identity, or acquire wealth, a holistic view of the kingdom of God is a radical shift in perspective. So let's define a kingdom view of our work in this way. In the kingdom of God, my work is a participation in God's renewal of creation. 
I think we need to replace the religion that the writer for the Atlantic, Derek Thompson, calls workism and replace it with a kingdom reframed approach. When you work for God's glory, you are partnering with him in the renewal of all things. And this might mean changing what you do, but more than likely, it matters less what you're doing, and it's probably going to change how and why you do it. It doesn't mean you need to get a job at a church or move to the mission field. It doesn't mean you need to stamp crosses or Bible verses onto the goods that you manufacture. It doesn't even necessarily mean that you need to start holding a Bible study at work or praying out loud at lunchtime. All of those are good things, but what I'm talking about is bigger than that. It's more pervasive than that. Later on in Colossians, Paul goes on to say, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it as if working for the Lord. It's shifting your why from building wealth or status to bettering your community and your workplace. It's shifting your how from how can I make this quicker and cheaper to how can I make this the best that I possibly can. As kingdom people, we recognize that our king provides for our needs and that he's the one who defines our status. We don't work for people or for a bottom line. We work for the Lord, and that means that there's a higher standard. God doesn't work halfway, but creates with excellence. So whether you're creating smartphones or spreadsheets or sandwiches, do it for the glory of the Lord. Do it with excellence. And by doing so, you are partnering with God, bringing beauty, order, and flourishing to his creation through your work. This is how God rules through his people and over his good world. It's the kingdom of God. So the same breath as work. I think it's important that we talk about the second area of our life, our rest, because all things have been created through him and for him, and it's in him that all things hold together. So yeah, we give King Jesus authority over our rest. And today we want to redefine rest by saying, in the kingdom of God, I can truly rest, knowing God still reigns. See, putting a kingdom lens on our rest is not a small tweak in perspective. This is a complete overhaul. It's a fundamental redefinition. Think about how our culture defines rest. Think about how it practices rest. Rest is largely demonized in our culture. We look down on people with time on their hands. We reward people who overwork and overextend themselves. Jeremy Treat comments on how we've turned busyness into a virtue. That's true. Coming into work on a Saturday is viewed as having initiative. Checking your emails in the evenings is commended as going above and beyond. Now, if we were in charge of our own lives, if we were sitting on the throne of the world and calling the shots, all of that would be really valid. Like, you really can't take a day off from work because things might actually fall apart if you do. But we have a different narrative. We serve a God who is actually the one on the throne. And the one on the throne who's looking over his people doesn't slumber or sleep, like it says in Psalm 121. So resting with a kingdom perspective, it looks different. It means actually powering down and disconnecting from our obsession with productivity. The Hebrew word for this is Shabbat, or you might know it better as Sabbath. It simply means to stop. When we see God over, as king over all creation, we can entrust all things into his hands while we rest. And that means we can actually rest because most of us land on one of two extremes. Either we half rest while we're still connected to our work through the computer that we all keep in our pockets, or many of us think that we rest when what we really do is digitally numb ourselves through escapist behaviors, like scrolling through social media only to look up and see the time and be shocked 
or when you're watching Netflix and it has to stop and ask you if you're still watching. That's a humbling moment. <laughs> I've been there. And when the people that are paying thousands and thousands and millions of dollars to try and get me to suck into their digital space have to stop and say, is he seriously still watching? He, he is, okay, all right, well, here goes another one. I love the distinction that Andy Crouch makes in his book between rest and leisure. You see, leisure is the mental anesthetic that keeps you focused, but on all of the wrong things. It kills our sleep patterns and leaves us more exhausted on Monday than we were on Friday afternoon. True rest, however, is unplugging. It's disconnecting and slowing your life around the patterns and practices that are life-giving. True rest is being with your family. It's it's having face-to-face conversations with a friend. It's silence and solitude, walking around in nature or walking around your neighborhood. Or maybe it's enjoying a delicious meal, which we'll talk about more in a bit. When we see God as king reigning in all of life, we can rest deeply, trusting that he's got things under control. Now, I mentioned enjoying a delicious meal. How many of you were a little uh, surprised to hear about food being on the list of areas that our kingdom perspective needs to be reimagined? Work makes sense. And I can get on board with rest, that's fine, but food, come on. If I'm being honest, the first time I saw it, I was a little surprised too, but all things have been created through him and for him. So yeah, a kingdom perspective has to impact our food as well. In the kingdom of God, food is not mere sustenance, but a foretaste of new creation with our king. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you that I wasn't disappointed when food made the list. The truth is, contrary to popular belief, the people of God historically have always been able to throw a really good party. The Jewish calendar was structured around festivals and celebrations. They had disciplined practices of fasting, yes, but when it came time to feast, nobody could do it better. It's remarked that if you look at Jesus' ministry through the lens of the book of Luke, he was always either going to a meal at a meal or coming from a meal. His first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding feast. I mean, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Odds are, he probably wasn't the trim 5% body fat version of Jesus that we're using to picture. Does this mean that he was an overindulgent partier with no self-control? Of course not. But it reminds us that he was brought up on the Hebrew festival calendar. It reminds us that he probably had most of the Hebrew Bible, the first two thirds of the book in your hand, memorized. And if you think about what that talks about, the the kingdom of God, it says things like in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. God gave us delicious meals as a foretaste of his kingdom to come called the new creation. So we slow down and we savor the good gift of food. The last area of life that I want to hit on is special to me, and that is art. Now, I haven't always considered myself an artist, but I have been captivated by how the kingdom of God uh, has shifted the way that I approach the arts, both as a consumer and a contributor. In the kingdom of God, art is a powerful prophetic device for telling the story of the kingdom. This could be literature, like prose or poetry or drama. It could be visual art, like painting, drawing, or sculpture. Or maybe graphic arts, like computer design or architecture. Maybe it's musical composition. All art has a good story to tell. But good art 
navigates around our rational minds and speaks that story directly into our soul. I think one of the foundational shifts for me was feeling permission to believe that good art matters. What an exquisite meal does for the human body, art and beauty do for the human soul. Toward the end of chapter four in Treat's book, he tells a story about an artist, Makoto Fujimura, who's a Japanese artist, and he came home one day to find that his wife had spent some of their dwindling funds on flowers set on the dining room table. So when he asks her why, he receives a powerful response. She looks and says, we need to feed our souls too. See, I think she understood something that God would have us here today, and that is we were created in the image of the ultimate artist. To say God appreciates beauty might be the deepest of understatements. I mean, look around. We draw our very definition of beauty from what God has created. Do you know what happened uh, the first time that the Bible records the spirit of the Lord coming upon somebody? It was to create the intricate beauty in the tabernacle, the very hot spot of God's presence. As humans, we have an innate longing for the transcendent. Yet we are starved for transcendence in a world driven by a capitalist, consumeristic culture where the very art meant to feed our souls is driven by the bottom line. Yet in response, Treat says, in a world stripped of transcendence, artists can help recapture the beauty and wonder of God's creation. As artists, we have the opportunity to recapture the narrative. As artists in God's kingdom, that opportunity becomes a responsibility. See, there was a time when the best music, mosaic, sculpture, and painting came out of the church. And I want to make a plea for the church to return to her God-given calling. You have been anointed with the spirit of the creator God. We cannot miss the opportunity to recapture the beauty of creation by joining in God's creative work and telling the story of his kingdom. So how is all of this sounding to you? I mean, as I was going through it, some of it made sense. Some of it surprised me, and some of it surprised me a lot. So why, if Jesus talked so much about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, why is this such a radical shift in perspective for us, his people? Well, let's be honest. Some of it's just bad theology. I think many of us believe what I call an I'll fly away theology that says, well, someday all of this is going to burn, and God is going to rescue us out of here and take us to this other place called heaven but that flies in the face of the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament as a whole. But let's say we see this rightly, that God isn't rescuing us out of the world, but is in fact bringing healing and renewal to this world by bringing heaven into our time and space. We are being called to partner with him in that effort. This is our purpose. This is what fulfills that longing that we were made to feel. We were created to partner with God in his creative work, creating beauty, bringing order, and restoring the goodness of creation. So what keeps us from doing it? Like I mentioned at the top, I think we have a control problem. We compartmentalize our lives in order to keep God in a box and maintain the illusion of control. But God in a box is not God, it's a puppet. So at the risk of sounding simplistic, I would say if the issue is control, the solution becomes surrender. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are faced every day with a choice to either seize the opportunity to rule on our own terms or to release that authority back to the king. 
All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things mean all things. Not only does the act of surrender go against much of what we're told to stand for, it's completely counterintuitive. Surrender and you will find freedom? Die to yourself and you will find life? Give up control and you embrace your God-given calling to rule under his authority? Maybe that's why it's so hard. It's like Aslan said earlier, the way of the kingdom requires some significant unlearning, deconstructing our cultural worldview and rebuilding it in light of the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. The effort is so worth it. We have to do better than praying at mealtimes and singing songs on Sunday morning or following a few pastors on Instagram. The good news is that this is impossible on our own strength. Jesus asked for our whole lives. It's a tall order. But it becomes good news when we realize that Jesus has given us his spirit that dwells within us, giving us strength, power, and perseverance, forming us into the likeness of Jesus. That's what we mean when we say, live and love like Jesus. And even then, it doesn't happen quickly. It's a lifetime of small choices choosing to surrender. Eventually, the hope is that we've surrendered everything, every part of our lives. But today, what I wanna do is encourage us to take that next step. So I wanna pose this question to you today. What is one area of your life you need to surrender back to the king? It might be your work, rest, food, or art, but these are just examples. It, it might be that you need to surrender your grocery shopping, or maybe you need to surrender pick up basketball with your friends. Maybe you need to surrender that hour uh, between dinner and the kids' bedtime. I wanna challenge you to first, name the area of your life that needs to be surrendered, and second, identify the first step toward reframing it in a kingdom perspective. A couple of quick thoughts on what this looks like. First, like I said earlier, don't assume that it will mean changing what you do, because more than likely for most of us, it will mean changing how and why you do what you do. Second, regardless of what the cool wristbands back in the 90s say, I think what would Jesus do is a terrible question to ask. Because the truth is, what Jesus would probably do is first, he would be a man. Second, he would be single. Then he would probably travel around the world preaching the gospel until it got him killed, and then he would rise from the dead. Instead, ask the brilliant question that Dallas Willard asks. What would Jesus do if he were you? What would Jesus do if he had three kids and worked on the manufacturing line? What would Jesus do if he was a single mom working two jobs to try and make ends meet? What would Jesus do if he worked in the C-suite at a Fortune 500 company? What would Jesus do if he had your friends, your skills, your personality? So name an area that you need to surrender and reframe it in a kingdom perspective. I wanna give just a few examples to get the wheels turning. Let's say you need to reframe your work, framing your job in a kingdom perspective. You might say, I am a teacher participating in God's work to uncover truth in our world. Or I'm a construction worker participating in God's desire for the reimagining and reordering of his creation. Or maybe you'd say, I'm a police officer participating in God's heart for justice. Or I'm a homemaker participating in God's heart for the flourishing of our home and neighborhood. Maybe you need to surrender your rest. So ask yourself the question, when you rest, are you resigning the rule of your life and the world around you to the king? Or are you merely feeding your own distraction 
with escapist behavior until you hit the rat race again. Maybe you need to surrender food in some aspect. Maybe it's planning one meal per week that is protected for your entire family, unhurried around your dinner table. Or maybe it's one evening a month to host a dinner and hear your guest's story and share your own. Maybe you need to surrender your art or creativity using your creative medium to show God's story in a way that's compelling and beautiful and then giving that away as gifts to your friends or loved ones. Maybe you need to surrender your calendar, your finances, your schoolwork. Maybe you need to surrender your relationships. Now, don't feel pressured to reframe this idea right here and now because this is something that's best done in community. So share it with your small group or your spouse or a friend or loved one and give them the authority to speak truth back into your life. Now, while I don't wanna pressure you to identify that now, I do believe that if we give the Holy Spirit the floor, that he can and will bring that to mind. He will bring to mind what needs to be surrendered in our lives. So so we wanna end this moment by encountering the king of the universe the way that believers have for centuries. And that is through the Lord's Supper. By eating bread and drinking the cup, we remember the truth and power of the gospel coming face to face with Jesus and giving him permission to take hold of us from the inside out. All things have been created through him and for him. If anyone was wondering whether or not this king can be trusted, it's a fair question. Is he someone that I can give control to? I love the way that the passage in Colossians continues. It answers this question by saying, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him meaning Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So if you ask the question, can he be trusted? Maybe you're asking that because this isn't a next step for you. Maybe this is a first step. But either way, what you're faced with is whether or not you're willing to accept the answer. Are you willing to accept the good news that even though we were once alienated from and enemies of God, he has restored the relationship. We have been reconciled back to God because Jesus gave up his life and defeated death in the grave by raising back to life. It's from that place that we seek to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what in our lives needs to be surrendered.